On this program, we frequently looked at the precarious nature of our future. Sadly, an increase in greenhouse gases seems certain given economic trends, yet only a leveling off or decrease of such gases can save us. Clearly, mankind has a big problem. Our guest today has taken a hard look at this issue and has come to a conclusion sure to unsettle some of you. Rhys Pally is a man with many interests. After serving in World War II, he attended the London School of Economics. He's been a venture capitalist in communist countries, an international art dealer, and an around-the-world sailor, in addition to being an author. His prior books have been on art, sailing, and what we'll probably want to return to talk about in the future, the history of concrete. But the question of how we save the world from CO2 emissions has been currently engaging his interest and produced his current work, which we're keen to talk about today. The book is titled... The Answer, Why Only Inherently Safe Mini Nuclear Power Plants Can Save Our World. We've talked about nuclear power with author Gwyneth Cravens and innovative nuclear technologies with Tom Bleese, and we're delighted to revisit this topic today. Thus, we say welcome to Radio Parallax, Reese Pally. Hi, Radio. <laughs> My first question for you, uh, Mr. Pally, has to do with the fact that as your book came to market, we witnessed this tsunami-generated meltdown in Japan, we should start off by noting the reactor types you advocate are quite different from the one that failed over in Japan post-earthquake. Yeah, that's the worst-kept nuclear secret in the world, which is that there is more than one nuclear technology. Um, the American public is convinced that there's only one kind of nuclear activity. And if you take that position, then you can only say, I'm for it or I'm against it. They have not been clued in to the fact that there are other nuclear technologies. And incidentally, the universities know it, the scientists know it, the government knows it, the regulatory agency know it. Everybody knows it except the American public. Well, uh, hopefully by the time we're done today, the public will be better educated about it. But I would like to take a fairly long digression uh, into, like, the alternatives that you hear promoted all the time. You've spent a lot of time in your book going through these one by one. I, I found them rather jaw-dropping in, in many cases because the certain technologies here have, have these wonderful green images. But uh, let's start by talking about some of the carbon footprints that are far wa worse than people imagine, uh, starting with wind power. Well, the problem with both wind and solar is that it only works when the sun's out or when the wind blows. And uh, it is... Uh, thoroughly undependable in terms of the need for a, a, perpetual, uh, a perpetual flow of electricity. So uh, the problem with uh, the carbon generation in wind and solar is that they have to be backed up with easily ramped up generation uh, capabilities, and that means either oil or coal. And these are the, this, this is the basic problem with solar. Besides, it is yet... The, the jury is still out as to whether solar can make any kind of a dent, uh, and it's even farther out whether wind can. Uh, wind usually produces electricity far, far away from the centers where it's needed, and there's enormous loss in transmission. Both of these systems are very expensive. Uh, they are producing electricity now, but as time goes on, the maintenance problem and the uh, Keeping them uh, moving is going to be uh, become more and more uh, difficult. So I have eliminated both wind and solar from my um, uh, selection of, uh, of generating capabilities. As a matter of fact, if you've read the book carefully, you'll see that there, is all, there are no uh, generating systems, none whatsoever, 
that produce that do not produce CO2, except nuclear and one small uh, uh, example, which uh, makes very little difference. Well, we'll go. Well, we'll, we do need to talk about all that, uh, but uh, because I think that's going to surprise a lot of people. It surprised me. I was surprised by the fact that you note hydroelectric power, great reputation, but it produces surprising amounts of not only CO2 but methane and nitrous oxide. That's right, because the uh, because the um, the lakes that are built behind the dam are deep lakes. They have to be deep because uh, they need a high uh, head of water to generate uh, to get a generation going. And the problem is that these lakes are filled with biomass material that have. Uh, come in through the rivers or uh, from other sources and settles at the bottom and as the carbon in it, as the biomass uh, distills into the water, you get a buildup of, uh, of uh, CO2 under high pressure. Uh, it doesn't come out because of the pressure of the water above it. But when the water is taken from the bottom of the lake uh, and run through a generator, uh, that water, which is supersaturated with CO2, then gives back all of the CO2 that it had been building up uh, over the years. It is a very important source of CO2. There's one small exception. Hydroelectric power that's generated out of, out of the ice and snow above the timberline and has no biomass in it, uh, does generate uh, carbon-free electricity. But that's a very, very small sample. Well, in the book, you note uh, that because, as you mentioned, that, that, that head of water, taking water as, as high as you can to generate the most power as it falls down, uh, uh, could be a problem in Lake Mead because Hoover Dam uh, is, is, may not be able to generate power in the future, which is kind of a, a bad prospect for L.A. And, and Las Vegas. Well, I was out to Hoover Dam not too long ago, about a year ago, and it was shocking how low the water was. Uh, there are only uh, a handful of feet left before the electricity shuts down altogether. Uh, recently, there have been some rain, and the, the levels have come back up a bit, but the long-term projection for the southwest is drought, which is climate, climate change produced. And with drought, you're going to get those lakes dry up. So you cannot depend on uh, hydroelectric uh, generation. And uh, besides the fact that it, uh, it produces CO2, the, the, the whole range of, uh, of ways to produce electricity are ultimately based in our economy on carbon, on millennial deposits of carbon that in 1800 we started digging into. And in the 200 years since then, we have put more carbon in the air than had been put in uh, for millennia since. We're putting, I think, something like 10, 12 billion tons of carbon into the air every year. And we just, carbon dioxide, that is. Mm -hmm. And we just can't survive that for too long. However, there is no will in the, uh, in the government uh, at all, uh, essentially their political decisions, uh, to shut down uh, carbon-producing uh, uh, generation. As a matter of fact, uh, as you read the newspapers today, countries around the world are pulling back on nuclear, so that we're only getting deeper and deeper into the problem. Now, the book was written about other technologies, 
I mean, we just I just used the beginning chapters to show that CO2 is the evil and CO2 can't be avoided, except by nuclear. But when you start looking at nuclear, you find that there are nuclear technologies that were developed in 1953 uh, by two men, one very well-known and one who should be well-known. The well-known one is Edward Teller. Uh, the one who should be well-known is Alvin Weinberg, who is the father, mother, grandfather, and grandmother of the nuclear of America's nuclear experience. In 1953, they decided that the direction that the, uh, the, U the government was taking towards generating nuclear power was too big. He called it, they called it gigantism. Uh, and that, that means that, that the, the complications of controlling an inherently unsafe a nuclear power plant gets more and more um, uh, complicated and more and more expensive and more and more undependable as the size increases. So they started out with two premises. Cut down the size, find a technology that allows you to, to generate at a smaller level, and find a technology that is inherently safe. That word inherent is important because it simply means that an inherently safe nuclear technology cannot, cannot, under any circumstances, melt down. The nature of the technology itself, that is the natural law that controls the technology, is a self-limiting, uh, in many cases self-limiting, and if, it, if the temperature goes up too much, radioactivity declines, and you have this slight up and down movement uh, to, uh, to upper and lower limits uh, that is found in one or two or three nuclear technologies which, uh, which the book talks about. Well, I, I'm quite intrigued in the book that you noted that um, there has been some, apparently some use of these smaller um, nuclear generating uh, stations. Apparently, the U.S. used one off of Panama to help run the canal back in 1967 to 76, which uh, we don't hear much about. I guess that was kind of a hush-hush event. That is the smallest use of the small nuclear uh, uh, generation. Uh, the important ones is the U.S. Navy. Mm -hmm. Now, the Navy has been running 100 nuclear submarines for 50 years without an accident. Uh, the Navy also runs enormous uh, um, aircraft characters, carriers mm -hmm. on nuclear. In fact, the Navy, all, the, the United States government did build one nuclear cargo ship, uh, USS Savannah, a beautiful ship, which they operated for a couple of years and which they took out of service, it is believed, because most of the ports around the world wouldn't let it in. Hmm. because of the radiation scare after, after Chernobyl and, uh, and uh, Three Mile Island and movies like uh, China Syndrome and, um, and uh, that sort of thing, which just scared the pants off of the, the public. And the, uh, those countries, starting with Japan, actually, uh, forbade the use of nuclear power in their ports. So that the... the so uh, the Russians are using and have been using nuclear power for a long time on a small scale. They put it on barges and take it out to, to northern areas of, uh, of Siberia 
uh, which can't, you can't get to in any other way. Uh, there's one town in Alaska which has to fly in its diesel fuel, which makes it wildly expensive. Mm -hmm. And there was a proposal to put a small nuclear device, uh, a small nuclear generating plant, forget the name of the town, in that town, but it was shut down because the, uh, the uh, regulatory agency, which has never approved anything but one uh, uh, form of nuclear generation in 60 years, uh, would not issue a uh, permit. What? That's the basis of the problem. Now, the basis of the problem is the technologies are there, the scientists know it, the government knows it, everybody knows it, uh, but the weight of the invested capital in coal and oil and uh, generation is so heavy that the, that the opposition to it just shuts it down every time it's talked about. And, of course, you have a little accident, little accident, <laughs> an accident like Fukushima, and suddenly everybody shuts it down. So we are fighting a very difficult battle, but it's all soluble by small nuclear technologies which are inherently safe and produce almost no nuclear waste. In fact, there's one technology which uses nuclear waste as its fuel. Uh, but these are rarely talked about and certainly not financed or investigated. All of the big engineering companies have their toe in the water in small nuclear generators. But they have been told by the regulatory commission that, you know, it's going to be 10, 20 years before we will even begin to decide whether to give you licensing. So the big guys are not going to put money in it. Well, that does seem to be a huge political problem related to the, you know, nuclear power's PR issues. Um, in reading your book, I think people will be surprised to learn that uh, the current light water reactors that we use and these, these large scale everywhere um, were favored because, specifically because they produce plutonium as a byproduct, which could be used in making nuclear weapons. So in, a, in the end of the Cold War, with that need going away, this is certainly uh, another reason to, to move away from light water reactors. Yeah, that's, that, that's absolutely true. And it's the same reason why the early um, uh, experimentation of, uh, of small reactors and inherently safe reactors was shut down by the Army. They wanted the plutonium and they didn't want any, they didn't have uh, uh, the foresight to see that at some point the Cold War would, be, would come to an end either disastrously or peacefully. And at which time, but by the time the Cold War came to an end, we were heavily invested in 100 nuclear power plants around the country. And you just can't do very much when you've got that kind of weight of invested capital. Let's talk a bit about uh, the advantage that what you're proposing would, would bring about in that with the plants being smaller, they could be put in more locations. They would then have less transmission losses. People talk about a smart grid. But uh, you point out that uh, by putting them more decentralized, there's an advantage to that. In addition to the fact that if you have a large smart grid connecting the whole country up, this is all subject to a possible disaster if we get a solar flare. Well, solar flare or a nuclear explosion, 35,000 feet above ground, would shut down the whole country, would push us back into the 17th century very quickly. But the, uh, you have to keep, you have to build a picture in your mind of what these small reactors are. Well, I mean small. Uh, the one that I favor and I like very much, the Hyperion model, 
is five feet wide and eight foot tall. That's the entire reactor, five feet wide and eight foot tall. And that will produce enough electricity for 20,000 homes for 10 years before you have to refuel it. Five feet wide by eight foot tall. What you do is you build them in a factory. They're not stick built. They're built on assembly lines. In by their thousands, if we ever get if we ever get ramped up, uh, you put them on a semi. You deliver it to the site. You dig a big hole. You drop this this uh, heat unit down into the bottom of the hole. You concrete it over, and you and it requires no controls and no operators for the next 20 years. Anything buried under 300 feet of concrete is not going to be subject to much uh, problems with terrorism or theft. And uh, the fact that you don't have to control it and you don't need a big staff to to run it means that these things take much less personnel. These things have been worked out carefully. I mean, the, the plans are all in sitting on a shelf somewhere. We could have small nuclear power plants, uh, 25 megawatt power plants for 20,000 homes. Where are you, in San Francisco? We're in the Davis, Sacramento area. Which nuclear plant supplies that area? Well, it's interesting you say that. We had a plant, Rancho Seco, that's the only nuclear power plant that's actually been closed down by a vote of the voters, which took place about 15 years ago. Our next nearest plant after that may be on the, on the coast near San Luis Obispo, I believe. Well, if it's probably a 1,000 megawatt uh, uh, power plant, and that would take 30, 3-0, small uh, nuclear power uh, generating plants like the Hyperion model uh, to replace it. Uh, you could, if, if you start building these on a factory level, you know, assembly line methods, you could build 30 of those things in 30 days. Uh, whereas uh, you have to to replace a plant that takes 15 years to build. The advantages are so enormous and so glaring and so immediate that it I, I talk about jaw-dropping. My jaw was wide open the whole time I was writing the book because all of the answers are already on the shelf. All of the answers to CO2, all of our answers to uh, terrorist threats, uh, to nuclear power plants, to the grid, to all of the problems that are being generated by these huge, huge power plants are, are on the shelf. Uh, you're at a university, right? Yes, we're, part, we're affiliated with UC Davis. Right. Call up the physics department and ask them about small nuclear generation. They know all about it. <laughs> Well, we may do that. Um, I just want to, before we leave the topic, of course, people always talk about the nuclear waste issue. You, you, these plants that you talk about would produce a small amount, but how do you see the, the waste issue being dealt with? Well, the waste is not a big problem even with the big plants. It's just, it's just that people have been scared into thinking about the 1,000 or 10,000 years of sequestration, uh, which is silly to begin with. There's a chapter in the book which deals with that. Uh, but they do produce much, much more waste than the the other technologies. In fact, there's one technology which is being financed by Bill Gates called the Traveling Wave Reactor, which actually uses uh, um, uh, waste from the big plants as its fuel. So you have a net minus contribution to the uh, total amount of 
of uh, nuclear waste in the world if you go the way of the Bill Gates proposal. Mr. Pally, in this program, we talked to Tom Bleese, author about his uh, advocacy of integrated fast reactors in the past that make it possible to burn a lot more nuclear fuel than we cur- currently do. Uh, do you have any comment on integrating that technology and what, with what you advocate? The only thing is that the, tech, the, the fast reactors are, are simply variations of the light water reactor and are in, inherently unsafe. The problem is that any time you have to control a nuclear reaction, that is not any time you, you need a layer after layer after layer of defenses against a meltdown, you have an inherently unsafe nuclear reactor, and they're going to blow. And they will make more or less damage, depending on how lucky we are. Uh, well, we were enormously lucky with Fukushima, in spite of all the damage it did. Uh, the six reactors there could have, could have ended the use of a good portion of northern Japan for generations. Uh, so you just don't fool around with that kind of scale, and you don't fool around with that kind of concentration of energy. The problem of scale is where is really central to the whole problem of nuclear safety. Even the light water reactors, if you reduce them in size, become enormously less, less dangerous, easier to control, and easier to build and to, and to uh, distribute. So that the, uh, the, the scale problem is really what is at the heart of the radiation threat. A small reactor can be easily controlled for radiation, whereas if a big one goes, there's no way to control the radiation. So you have to look at scale, and you have to look at inherent safety. You have to look at the advantage of not having to have a grid. You have to look at the advantage of building uh, reactors quickly on the assembly lines. These are all problems which have been worked out and which are sitting waiting for our dumb politicians to get around to, to enough nerve to confront the, the coal and oil barren. Well, that's one thing we can always count on politicians to do, see which way the wind is blowing. We certainly do have a PR problem with nuclear power, with, an, with sort of a coalition of environmental groups and fossil fuel producers. I'm curious to know um, how what you're advocating is being received uh, as, as you talk to people around the country. My, my particular message is well-known in the industry and well-known among the scientists. It is not well-known among the general public, and it is not being received well. Uh, people don't want to learn, they want to know uh, that, they're, that the very deeply held beliefs uh, are absolutely nonsense. So the problem is, I, actually the book suffers from the fact that I wrote it to reach the, lo- the lowest common denominator of the American reader. Since we're not getting any change from the top, my theory in writing the book was, let's appeal to the man in the street. Well, we will see if the book gets the kind of distribution that, that is intended, because you're not going to get any movement from the government. Actually, you know what? We're not going to get very much movement from anybody. <laughs> uh, we are going to go along until the climate things become so difficult and so expensive and so immediately evident that the CO2 that we're pumping out is, can't, cannot be handled by our planet. And at that point, at enormous, enormous, on trillions and trillions of dollars worth of cost, 
we're going to have to make some kind of an adjustment. Well, I, I hope it takes place soon, sooner than that. I, I do want to note in terms of, the, of, of uh, reaching out to the public that I stopped in a mini-mart while I was driving uh, home last night. I had your book with me. I laid it down on the counter, and the man uh, at the checkout looked down and said, mini nuclear power plants, eh? And I said, well, could be the answer. He looks at me and says, they're doing fine in France. 95% of their power comes from nuclear energy. There's no reason we couldn't do it here. Well, that's, you know, he's, he's half right. The French experience works because the French nationalized the energy industry. And if you're going to suggest that the American public, the American government, is going to nationalize coal, oil, uh, natural gas, and coal generation, and all the rest of it, and bring it under one, uh, one uh, umbrella, it's just not going to happen. We can't even regulate fracking in Pennsylvania, let alone... Uh, uh, organize all of the energy uh, producers uh, under one government control. Uh, the French are taking a chance, but because everything is standardized and because everything is, has been worked out uh, by one agency, uh, they, have been, they have had a remarkably good safety record. But that safety record is just as good as the next accident. Well, we highly recommend this book. It is titled, The Answer, Why Only Inherently Safe Mini Nuclear Power Plants Can Save Our World. We've been speaking with author Reese Pally. Uh, I want to thank you very much for speaking with, with us, Mr. Pally, and I hope that people do read this book and, and uh, the light bulbs will go off over a lot of heads. Well, we're praying for lots of light bulbs. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to, first place to recognize that Unlike a lot of interviewers, you actually read the book and thought about it. And for that, I thank you very much. Well, you're, you're welcome. Bye, and thanks again. <laughs>